Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the two podcasts we've done already this year and this is another Phantoms uh, for the print edition of March 2023. And as always, I have with me Professor Ben Sensen from The Simpson in, in Edinburgh. Uh, would you like to say hello, Ben? Hello, Jonathan. Uh, so this is, uh, as always, and, and I'm sure people are probably are getting bored of me saying this, but I always find that there's a lot of oh, there's a lot of great content, even just in in the phantoms. And, and this month, there's uh, a little bit on on caffeine and a lot on uh, delivery rooms and cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and that seems to be where a lot of a lot of work is being focused on currently. Because a lot of the the phantoms we have these sort of similar discussions on airways. And, uh, and delivery rooms, um, but into into caffeine uh, to begin with, and this is a, a I guess following the the cap trial study that I believe that I was a trainee when they were recruiting for that. Um, following that study, there have been a lot of of I guess treatment creep uh, use of of caffeine in all different types of of babies and in, in slightly different circumstances than it was originally. Um, Proposed. So this is a a, a study uh, by Elizabeth Oliphant um, looking at caffeine in late preterms. Originally, the the uh, cap trial stopped at thirty four weeks, but these are babies who are born at thirty four weeks, and it, it seems to 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 have a little bit of a physiological impact. Ben, yes, I found the study very interesting. It won't tell us what to do, but it's a journey on the path of us getting a wider understanding of how to use caffeine. And as you say, the, the caffeine for of prematurity studying, very importantly, demonstrated wider benefits from caffeine than we would have guessed. And we don't, in truth, actually know the mechanisms through which they might be delivered. But in, in response to the protocol that was evaluated in the CAP trial, we stop our caffeine at 34 weeks in our preterm infants. Certainly, they carry on having issues related to their respiratory drive well up towards term, and sometimes desaturations cause the babies to get treated for reflux or to stay in oxygen longer because they can't pass their room air tests. So um, the idea that caffeine might be uh, beneficial beyond 34 weeks, I think is a really important thing for us to work out. The benefits then wouldn't be confined necessarily to babies born late preterm because the extreme preterm also have to uh, traverse those weeks between 34 weeks and term and whether or not it would help them to progress during that period or continue to exert beneficial effects on later outcomes through the mechanisms that we don't fully understand, well, it would be great to find that out. So this study is um, working up towards the large-scale RCT that the authors would like to conduct to address these kinds of questions. Uh, and when you mentioned the additional benefits, so I suppose the caffeine for apnea prematurity trial was really intended to stop 
apnea or prematurity after extubation, if I remember correctly. Um, but what uh, I guess you were alluding to with the additional benefits is there seem to be d- developmental improvements, probably or possibly related to white matter benefits, if you believe the um, the, the proposed uh, mechanisms and, and other uh, methylxanthines like um, pentoxifilin and things seem to work by that mechanism. Um, but the longer term outcomes, I think into into two and into five and even into eleven, if I remember correctly, seem to to have benefits from from those caffeine from that that cohort that cap cohort. Um, so we'll put some links for the the cap trial in the longer term um, cap trial studies. But I suppose the question I was going to ask you uh, was. I suspect um, and uh, that a thirty-four, a baby born at thirty-four weeks may be different to a baby who has been born at twenty-four weeks and is ten weeks old in terms of their brain mechanism and and what benefits the caffeine may have for that developing brain and what what point of development the brain is at. Yeah, and obviously their absolute risk of serious later problems is much smaller, and that was why. I was suggesting that although they might want to look at these late preterm infants, they shouldn't exclude an evaluation of caffeine mm. and later gestation in the extreme preterm infants too. And um, there weren't just later neurodevelopmental benefits. There was also pulmonary benefits, which might be assumed simply to be related to reduced exposure to ventilation and uh, so on. But there's all sorts of different ways that caffeine affects metabolism and it has anti-inflammatory effects. And so I think we just haven't evaluated it fully enough to be sure that we reaped all the benefits. Caffeine therapy for the extreme preterms was fairly well established before the CAP trial, but the CAP trial also showed it was safe and, un- and unveiled these unrecognized later benefits. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I can, I can, and I can remember the, the thrust of the CAP trial being, or people's concern, certainly where I trained in Belfast, the concern was, did caffeine have implications on growth um, and um, uh, and those kind of things um, were the were concerns that the, if you put a baby on caffeine, the metabolism is then changed in some way that, that impacted negatively. Um, and the, 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 these authors do bring up a, an, an interesting um, question about the dose of, of, of caffeine, because I suspect that we're still using the CAP trial dose. Certainly anywhere I have worked, we use the CAP trial dose for loading and for maintenance but um and um, most people that i i know go up to 10 milligrams per kilo per day because i believe that's what the cap trial allowed in the protocol but oliphant et al are suggesting that the dose of 20 milligrams per kilogram per day might 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 be better Uh, but i guess that shows that we don't really know what the right dose is for some of these drugs that we're using well the um in the more preterm babies, there is evidence that those who are still having problems with respiratory control at the five milligram dose gain further benefits at the 10 milligram dose. But the, the issue for these authors was that in mature infants, the metabolism of caffeine is different so that it's reasonable to predict that they might need a higher dose. And that's why they looked at this wider range. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I've read that as babies get older, they need bigger doses and there has been a study if i remember correct 
Clay, Luke Jardine, uh, who is a, a neonatologist in the matter in Brisbane, looked at dosing uh, at 20 milligrams, uh, up to 20 milligrams, and that was safe and free from free from side effects. Uh, so there's a lot, there's a really, a, a, this is a great, I think you're absolutely right, this is a great paper. There's a lot to unpack in that, that study and a lot to still get your teeth into for what was presumed to be a perhaps a question that uh, had uh, uh, one of the few questions in neonatology that may have been have been answered. Um, the next study uh, in the phantoms is a systematic review of metal analysis of laryngeal mask airways versus face mask ventilation in low and middle income countries. And this is a, a, a perhaps a useful adjunct, not just for the LMA, not just for an intubation adjunct, but to uh, take the place of for, for effective uh, face mask uh, ventilation benzene to have some benefits. I find this topic very interesting too, because as a more senior neonatologist who gets called to help when things are not going well, my observations are similar to all of the observations made on resuscitation training courses, that mask ventilation is a difficult skill. It's easily done not very well, and it's very easy for people to obstruct airways and think they're doing the right thing for the baby, but to be making things worse. And it's very clear that LMAs, laryngeal mask airways, have a place in this situation. So they're now taught on the UK Resuscitation Council resuscitation courses as a skill. But my observation in practice is that they still don't come out that often. And yet here is a fairly reasonable body of evidence showing that about one time out of 10 or more, things go better if you use an LMA. And for us who are particularly interested in avoiding intubation, ultimately it may result in fewer intubations. I guess our our difficulty is still the size of the devices for the more immature infants who might benefit the best. But I think that my observation, at least, is that they haven't crept into use as much as would be justified by the evidence that's evaluated. This is what was slightly disappointing about this not the study itself, but the data that they were able to record was, I think they did it over a 32-year period and uncovered six randomised control trials comparing those two. So I think um, I agree, as as, as as often you find, the, if you do the simple things first, then you can often avoid the need for more complex interventions, getting the, the lungs inflated uh, by simple airway measures seemed to be uh, the sensible and right thing to do. And um, this study perhaps shows that more evidence is required in, in its simplicity and utility rather than just um, it's a it's a device that we can we can pull out when we're in trouble but actually perhaps it's a it, it's better in the first principles and I think there's a a long way to go in terms of uh, showing that I mean this the outcomes of this in this study were um, death or encephalopathy but I think um, there are perhaps benefits um, other benefits that that perhaps can be explored in a, in a in a properly conducted prospective trial. Well, I agree. There's a, there's a lot people can do when things aren't working. But my observation from critical case reviews, coroners' reports, and things like that is it's amazing how often people forget to do stuff 
that might have helped when the chips are down and they get focused on one particular thing and can't see the big picture. So devices like this, which can make a difference, won't be thought of often enough unless people are using them often enough that they're in their thoughts. And I'm not sure yet that they are. Absolutely. Um, the next uh, study is uh, one that I have uh, personally found very interesting. And actually, we have discussed at our uh, newborn uh, emergency transport service journal club. Uh, and that is looking at pneumothorax in, in neonatal retrievals. And this is from our colleagues in, in Victoria, in the Piper Retrieval Service, uh, which is the paediatric and infant perinatal emergency retrieval. And that's uh, based at the Royal Children's Hospital in, in Melbourne. And I just thought this was a great study just because of its simplicity and benefit. I think many people who find themselves in a hospital that they're not used to being in, moving a baby with a pneumothorax, this gives some confidence that you don't always need to go, perhaps like in, in NICUs, the, the most invasive means of making sure that something is drained is not always necessarily the right thing to do. And there is confidence that a, a more conservative approach in the right patient might be might be possible. Um, your thoughts, Ben? Yes, I found this uh, paper very interesting too. And as you say, it's quite simple, effectively audit of practice. And it's of interest to me because I'm someone who's had a role in neonatal transport across my career. Um, and when you're having to move a baby and you know they've got a pneumothorax, the temptation is to do everything possible to be in control before you move to avoid any problems in the journey. And you would recognize that that might cause you from time to time to be more invasive than you otherwise might be and therefore to worry about the consequences. So this is obviously a really big service because they were able to report transports of 174 babies who had pneumothoraces and it would take us in our transport system a very long time to gather a data set like that and the changes in practice that would occur over the time taken to gather it would make it pretty uninterpretable but these these cases were gathered recently but between 2016 and 2020 so contemporary and relevant and out of these uh 174 infants with pneumothoraces, fewer than half got a chest drain inserted prior to transport. And uh, consequently, they were able to manage a lot more infants without chest drain insertion safely than I would have guessed. That includes a, a small number, admittedly, uh, but nevertheless, a, a number of infants who were transported by air without chest drain without any complication either. So it certainly caused a frame shift in my thinking about how big an issue pneumothorax is in relation to transport. And certainly absent severe RDS and likely ongoing need for ventilation and higher pressures, it might cause me to rethink. Uh, absolutely. I think it gives some great basis for uh, perhaps a less invasive approach. And um, yeah, it, like you say, it's a... It was a, a very neat and very lovely study. Um, 
the, the next one I wanted to just talk about was uh, a paper by Colm O'Donnell from uh, the National Maternity Hospital in Dublin and his colleagues from a little further afield. Uh, and this was a really a, quite an expansive review on the future of clinical trials and really focusing on the, the need for perhaps more pragmatic steps for greater inclusivity in those in those trials. Um, and do you think they have a, a valid point? Do you think there's a possibility that that could happen? Yes. Yeah, so well, as you say, it's a, it's an essay on what is holding us back in terms of high quality evidence about delivery room management, and the difficulty of the events being relatively infrequent compared to the numbers of infants who are born, making prior consent models difficult to apply, the ethical challenges of getting approval for research with a waiver of prospective consent, the 24-7 nature of the business of initial stabilization. All of these things means that most of our evidence base related to neonatal stabilization that comes from human infants, at least, is still from relatively small studies. And yet, if we want to know what makes the difference and what doesn't, we have to study very large numbers. So, I really applaud their efforts to move this forward onto a larger scale. And I think it's quite exciting, an exciting time in neonatology. There's quite a lot of efforts going on to upscale access to research for babies and deliverability of larger trials. Certainly uh, in, in the UK, Europe and Australia, we've got examples of um, these kinds of collaborations growing all around us. And I think it's an exciting time to look forward. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, there are some great innovators thinking about how to intelligently and pragmatically and I suppose ethically acceptably um, integrate some of those things that, 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 that might benefit into routine care and practice. And I think there's some great exciting things on, on the horizon. Um, and in the same vein as uh, the uh, resuscitation room, Gerhard Smoltzer's group looking at uh, chest compressions in asphyxiated piglets and uh, the different speeds and cardiac outputs, which is, again, again another quite short, relatively short, really simple study, but really interesting to, to, to look at the difference and the difference in cardiac output uh, dependent on on what the rate of, of cardiac compression was um, in this in this piglet model. Yes, and this was just physiologically very interesting because to a certain extent, the way we deliver CPR in newborn infants is determined by the perceived feasibility of different approaches as much as by direct evidence of what might be beneficial. And the rates we use for chest compressions are very much lower than the rates at which the hearts of babies beat when they're ill. So um, these authors, by using an automated adjustable advice, were able to stepwise change the compression rates and measure the hemodynamic effects of them. It's just interesting to me that it shows that they get the highest blood flows and cardiac outputs and blood pressures at the sorts of rates that our baby's heartbeats go when they're sick and intense care and not at the sorts of rates that we're presently delivering CPR to them when they need it. So 
that's not the same as saying that means we should double our CPR rate because physically doing it is challenging and we may be less effective, but it does at least suggest we've got to find a way of evaluating more widely the way we do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- yeah, I think, I think it's um, what, what's happening whenever I suspect there are a lot of other variables to consider and what's happening when a baby arrives into the world and something else is happening or someone's doing a, a different depth of compression and um, or the placenta is attached. And I think there's there are lots of other variables to consider, but certainly understanding that perhaps the the standard number that we're considering using may have to change dependent on the physiological um, circumstances that the baby's in at that, at that time, whether sick or well, as you say. Um, so thank you very much, Ben. This is a, I always look forward to this discussion. Um, we will add in some links so people can get a bit of background, especially a little bit of background to the, the caffeine uh, and some of the laryngeal mask conversations. We can put in a little bit of information about uh, the pneumothoraces um, and uh, I believe that the chest compressions, the uh, the uh, ILCOR uh, chest compressions group have a, a publication coming up in archives which will be in a, in a similar uh, vein or certainly collecting some similar data um, to what we've just discussed. So um, thanks again for, for the discussion and I, I, I look forward to our next podcast and we can uh, get in contact with the, the journal um, and engage with the podcast via the front page of, of ADC FN uh, or via Twitter at uh, ADC underscore FN uh, my Twitter address at Jonathan underscore Davis 3 and Ben's which is at Stenson Ben um, we have the capacity now to get our podcasts on a range of uh, other platforms including Spotify and today I have just uh, sent a link to Twitter uh, of the, our Spotify account so that you can get this podcast delivered straight to your phone without even have to, having to do any clicking so I uh, look forward to, to further conversations and um, perhaps one of these papers will make a make a discussion with the authors in the next podcast so um, thank you very much Ben and uh, have a good day thanks Jonathan